there's a core uniting principle, which is freedom of expression. Everyone is aiming to be free to publish the information. The question is then is what limits appropriately should be put on that within the law and within ethics. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under 30s for the under 30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. All right. Hi, everyone. Another episode of The Talent Show here at the Financial Times at Quarter. We are at Brackenhaus, London, and uh, I am sharing the podcast table with the Senior Legal Counsel at the Financial Times, uh, Nigel Hansen, that is here with us to explain how you can be a legal expert for a newspaper. How are you, Nigel? Very well, and thank you for inviting me along. No, thank you so much for joining. And uh, I'm so curious, we are all so curious about uh, what you actually do at the Financial <laughs> Times because, you know, we just recorded an episode that went out recently with uh, Deck McCram and we were talking with him about difficulties with the white card scandal and how meaningful it was your uh, job especially your expertise in uh, cracking that uh, model, but also like that investigation reporting uh, um, work cycle. So out of that, so hi, guys, please do listen to that episode before listening to this. Uh, Nigel, what do you do for the Financial Times? What does it mean to be a senior legal counsel? I'm sure there are a lot of people who, who want, want to know what, exactly what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's a very varied job. Um, and effectively uh, involves pre-publication advice issues. And this is in for print, online, video, and podcast. Um, and then post, post-publication complaints handling. I work closely with uh, Hugh Carnegie, the senior editor for quality and accuracy, um, o- o- on code and ethical issues. Uh, and then also le- legal complaints, post-publication. And then if things develop into litigation, Uh, I liaise with external lawyers in different countries uh, quite often. It can be in other jurisdictions, but um, particularly in London, obviously. And uh, handle and help to manage the, the litigation, which uh, may be in, in courts, different, type, different types of courts. How did you first develop an interest in law? So what is your background? You graduated, I, I expect, in law. Can you tell us a bit about your journey? How did you arrive here and did you, how did you land here at the Financial Times? Sure, yeah, quite a zigzag path and I'm sure the same for many, many people. I mean, over a 35, 45-year career that people have, um, there are lots of opportunities to take different turns. But I, 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 um, I've always, I, I suppose, been a um, slightly reluctant lawyer. I, 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 I've, uh, was, chose law as a, as, a de- as a degree subject, um, as a sort of practical option. Um, using uh, that, 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 would, that would use skills that I'd, I'd enjoyed in history and English. Um, and I was a little bit cautious about doing a pure arts degree. So I sort of did, did uh, law. I was lucky enough to get into Cambridge and did a law, law degree, but actually halfway through wondered 
perhaps I should change to history. So I was, I was reluctant at that, that stage, but I carried on, did my three years, um, and actually very glad that I went through and got the professional qualification, I think, for you know, young, uh, yeah, young people starting out on a career in their, perhaps in their 20s or so. Um, it, I, I would I would recommend um, obtaining a professional qualification like a, like a law qualification as a foundation. Um, so that was um, you know I did my training in London with a, a West End firm called Kingsley Napley, um, and then went off to do legal aid defence work in Oxford, so street crime defence, magistrates court advocacy. I did that for about seven years in total, working in the police stations and so on as a duty solicitor um, and for, for myself I had a sort of career stand back and, and take stock moment when I was when I was about 30 okay. Um, okay. and uh, I actually went off and trained as a journalist fantastic okay that's that's very risk-taking approach as well I think you had quite of a you know uh, classic but also stable path in front of you what made you change what was that what happened in your life that you said like i really want to go into journalism now <laughs> well um life as a, a criminal defense lawyer is uh, it's quite a tough life you know it's yeah. sort of down the police station in the middle of the night dealing with burglars and so on and then into court the next morning um so it's a fairly i i, I my time in oxford was um uh, quite a tough, quite a seedy side of, of life, seeing all the, the underbelly of a city like Oxford, which is quite international in many ways, but has a lot of um, drug and poverty problems as well. So I, I just felt I wanted to not spend 45 years doing this. Uh, and uh, I was, I've was i always been interested in uh, words and writing and so on. So I actually carried on doing um, police station advice work to, to get my, my money coming in. But I went off to work at Blackwell's Bookshop in Oxford for a year and just spent time standing back from my career as a lawyer. Um, and then got a job on the local paper, the Oxford Mail, for about three years. Okay. Um, and what did you do that? I, I, I went through the, the normal process. I, I uh, went off to the NCTJ course at Harlow College, did okay. six-month course in newspaper journalism. Okay. Um, and then I got a training contract or a trainee job with NewsQuest in Oxfordshire. Uh, then I did my national certificate exam, which is what they call a senior journalist exam at Cheltenham, and I uh, did all my sort of shorthand, mm -hmm. 100 words a minute shorthand and so on. Became um, an NCTJ qualified reporter, doing you know general news, quite a lot of court reporting, because I knew, I knew legal issues very closely, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my fiance moved to Devon for a doctorate, and I followed her and went freelance for about a year, um, okay. writing for things like the Law Society Gazette, features and so on, just to try and uh, carry on there. But um, I eventually saw an advert for a, a regional law firm uh, looking for someone that knew about uh, local newspapers. And they had a very good niche practice, in mainly in Plymouth at that stage, acting for things like Northcliffe, NewsQuest, Trinity Mirror Regionals, defending them on a cost-effective basis, on a re regional cost basis. And so I did, got a job there seven years as a, as a uh, media litigator for, for defending local papers. Um, and that, that really sewed together my, yeah. my background as really defence defense background, criminal defence and then media defence, 
with three or four years in the middle as a journalist. So that's that's how it added up to be um, the media lawyer. I guess you are quite happy about your job now here I, at FT. I, I love my job here. Yeah. Um, Can you walk us through how does your day look like? What 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 do you do uh, for the FT? Sure. Well, it's a case of wake up and see what's in the inbox. If, uh, what's <laughs> because we've got obviously the. 24-hour news cycle. We have staff journalists in Hong Kong who are ahead of us, and in in the Americas who are behind us. So it's always a case of what, what's what's waiting in the inbox. And then um, one issue is that you never really know what's what's going to blow in each day. Um, that's the nature of being a media lawyer. But you always have um, some ongoing, longer pieces of work which need time to sit back and draft and and so on. And then you have your uh, deadline pre-pub clearance work. This is going online. We need it up on the internet soon. Is this okay legally? Um, and deadlines for litigation and so on. So yeah, very varied and you never quite know. Uh, but somehow it all comes to end about seven o'clock and I hand over to our external law firm for the evening shift. I mean, the, the FT has a quite a large legal team. Um, I, I'm, the, I'm the only one that sits in the newsroom on the second floor here at Bracken House. And the FT has lawyers in Belfast as a regional hub um, and in London with a compliance team too and in Beijing and Hong Kong at the moment. So we have an international That's network fantastic. of colleagues. What does it mean being a media lawyer? So um, a journalist is working on a, a big report. Do they come to you? Do you go to them? How? What is your relationship? Can you just make us understand the workflow? Uh, well, the, the Wirecard case is a good one to as yeah. a good sort of case study, um, uh, and there's so much to uh, it's difficult to know where to begin because it went on for about five years. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I think typically the, the media law is not included at the very outset. They, they sort of everything's bubbling away. You're not really fully aware of you, can, you can't be aware of everything that, that's that's going on, being uh, instigated and prepared. Um, But at some stage, the reporter will come and explain that they've got this far with the investigation. Um, there seem to be these potential issues. How do I see the legal issues, level of risk and so on, and what steps should next be taken? So mm -hmm. so on the Wirecard case, um, initially that was a very painstaking piece of uh, journalism by Dan when he did for Alphaville the House of Wirecard series. But so my work there was really just trying to uh, have a very forensic eye on how he worded things and whether the, the copy was sort of consistent and, and, and so on and any any obvious holes in it. But then obviously when his allegations developed um, and it became clear that they were, the journalists believed there was serious fraud here, mm -hmm. then issues of uh, defamation arose and um, because there were some internal documents, there were issues of breach of confidence, data law issues and so on. Um, and it involved issues in Germany and in Singapore. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, and in the Philippines. Um, uh, uh, and uh, when when we started to engage with their aggressive claimant lawyers, uh, you know, then it became more stressful. I think what I'd say, though, is the FT has such great quality journalists that it's easy to be the lawyer because they know researched it so well and so long as you keep standing on solid ground you can keep stepping forwards even in the face of pushback from international claimant lawyers and so on and um, that's what we did for about five years and eventually slayed slayed the the evil ogre if you like yeah. uh, a bit of a more personal question how do you manage stress 
Yeah, yeah, and it's just stressful. I mean, I try and keep active when I have the time. So try and go on, um, do a bit of jogging and a bit of swimming. Um, so and I drink a bit of wine. Yeah, but can you can you really switch off? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at switching off uh, when, when I. But on duty, it, it's it's pretty full on. Yeah. Uh, but you do have to. I mean, I I like my downtime, and, and um, I'm not someone that sort of spends my weekends reading law books. Um, and I, you know, you, so I have to try and uh, uh, keep things in perspective. But yes, it, it can be it can be stressful. And I think the only way is, everyone knows, everyone does this, you've got to keep physically active. That's a good a good stress buster. Yeah, and uh, I guess like you know, um, with technology and uh, all the, the uh, you know difficult questions and ethical questions that uh, tech development is uh, asking as as uh, a news enterprise to uh, at least being able to answer. Um, how do you uh, keep up with all the different innovations from a tech perspectives, from a legal point of view? Um, do you um, do you envisage any, you know, uh, law uh, spin, like any new jobs coming? Someone that maybe needs to be for you an um, uh, expert on tech and law or something like that you see rising, especially for our younger audiences, what they might need to, you know, switch or uh, look for? I mean, tech um, may well be a specialism um, that young lawyers starting out would do well to specialise in. I mean, I think what, what, what you have to have to move forwards in a career is, is um, a, a real skill, a real specialisation, which you sort of have a passion for, and then gradually apply that moving forwards to your advantage. I mean, I, I <laughs> um, consult colleagues on, on uh, innovative tech problems. I mean, I've got very good colleagues in the FT legal team who are excellent on IT and so on, IT law. Uh, I mean, yesterday I, I was consulting our assistant general counsel on an issue involving artificial, artificial intelligence and copyright, you know, in terms of uh, who owns the copyright. Is, um, yeah. is it the author who puts the instructions in? Is it the, the owner of the maker of the software that enables the creation and so on? So, you know, I, law, as you say, moves at a fairly glacial pace, but it, the law does try and apply its old principles to the new tech situations. And um, so you can go a long way, even as a traditionalist like I am, um, because the law will just work, try and work out who is the author, yeah. who is the publisher, who is the, and so on. Um, and, you know, although things become uh, newfangled, uh, the courts and the, the case law will always try and view those new things uh, in the light of the old established yeah. principles. So if you had to, to give one advice to our younger audiences of, to be a media lawyer, specifically maybe for the FT, someone that would love to pursue your career in the future, what would it be? You've got to somehow get experience of journalism, whether it's in broadcast uh, or online or in, in, in newspaper magazine, magazine or books and so on. So you've got to have that specialist insight and that might take you a, a couple of years to get that somewhere, work experience. Um, um, and then it's a fairly small world. You know, I think there's probably certainly in-house newspaper lawyers, there's probably a few dozen worldwide, really. That, I mean, yeah. well, I mean, um, I mean we, we have an annual conference through what's called the MLRC, and, and it really is, in terms of in-house lawyers, just a few dozen that come to that international conference. Um, you see, I mean, there's only one in-house at the FT. Each of the UK papers will have yeah. a handful only. So it's a small world, and I think... Um, 
it, it's, it's quite difficult to break into that, but you've got to have some special insight, some experience and work experience to offer. Mm, I think it's very niche, but at the same time, it really combines different interests, as, as we were mentioning, like from the law side, the newsroom uh, dynamics, journalism, ethos, ways of working, understanding how a journalist thinks and behaves. Do you feel a bit more um, uh, like that there is a bit of a, a bit more risk sometimes uh, compared to your first part of your career, even if it's not in terms of hours that you needed to work? But maybe here sometimes with a Wirecard case, right, you were playing with a big, big, powerful... There are big risks. You're effectively... You're defending, there's a core uniting principle, which is freedom of expression. Everyone is aiming to be free to publish the information. The question is then is what limits appropriately should be put on that within the law and within ethics. Um, but effectively, you're then defending the, the information products. And it's, that's the c constant from my, my, my career background, defending the criminal in court. Here you're defending the published article for all the journalistic activity. It's, def it's a defense mindset, which I think is, is probably the um, a constant th through my career. Um, and, um, but you're right, the, the commercial risks are uh, potentially, potentially great. Um, so far we've done okay. I've been here about 11, 11 years or so, and um, so far um, those commercial risks haven't crystallized too badly. <laughs> The most exciting case you worked on. That's the, my last question for you. I mean, I've, I've got favourite cases. I mean, the, you know, the exciting may not be the right way, but I, I think, I mean, the wire card has just had everything for in five years' worth of work. That's got to be up there. Yeah. The case defending Tom Burgess and uh, Eura uh, sorry, uh, FT against ENRC, which is the Eurasian, Eurasian Natural Resources uh, corporation case that was high profile case one of these um in the era of the slaps the strategic lawsuits against public participation that that became a, a case in that uh in that area um the president's club story that madison marriage did in 2016 i think was stays in my mind because it was the ft around that time took a step forward into into investigative work um they hadn't done for a while. Uh, there was some undercover reporting, long long lens photography from a, from a, from Hyde Park across Park Lane to the hotel where this party for the President's Club was being held, and um, reporters got wired up with hidden microphones and so on, hidden camera, and it was all discussed in advance in terms of public interest and justification, editorially signed off and approved. But that was that certainly was. The, for me, the sort of beginning of that line of work, um, which uh, yeah, was one of my favourite, um, one of my favourite stories. You should check it out because we're going to push all these stories in the note uh, of this show. So please check them because they are very exciting. And I think looking back at uh, uh, the hard work um, that you can see just in one piece of news, guys, it's it's. I think now you can really get the full picture of what's behind all the different professionals that need to be involved in covering with such high quality journalism and, uh, of course, information and insights. It's not just, of course, the amazing work of reporters, but there is a whole team behind is from, of course, the legal side that we explored with you in another episode, the data visualization side, how you show uh, the information and the data gathered. So just check it out and read the news with another eye. Uh, the
particular part of this uh, podcast show is that we get the two young people to come along um, that uh, do actually um, match with uh, your career. So I got Alison and Siang from the Imperial College Law Society that are here to ask you two questions. You are both secretary and chair of Imperial College Law Society. So, Alison, tell us a bit about you and uh, what your society does. And then, of course, ask your question to Nigel, please. So, my name is Alison. I do chemistry at Imperial. Um, and I'm the secretary of our law society. Um, so, obviously, we're STEM students, so we don't have any law experience, actually. But what we do is that we aim to help students, to help them find careers in law. So, we do meetings with uh, law firms, such as Alan Overy or HSF. And then we help them to do workshops and then help them build that legal career for the future. Um, so it's great to be here today, actually. Um, I read a lot about you um, online. Um, so it's really impressive, your career. And I really wanted to ask, because um, obviously you worked at Kingsley. So how do working within IP law differ from a commercial setting to what you do now? So, uh, for example, your clients or the research? Yeah, King Kingsley Napoli was where I did my training. Um, oh, yeah. Yes, um, many years ago, early 1990s. <laughs> a different era. Um, uh, there were... Uh, they had a word processing department, but mainly faxes. So we didn't work. We'd worked on dictaphones. It was, it was a different time. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, my, yeah, my experience there uh, as a trainee, you do four, four uh, seats, they're called, six months in each department, civil litigation, criminal litigation, property, and family I did to get my, my articles of clerkship. Um, and I think what... Uh, Obviously, that's an example of um, private client, private practice. So, um, uh, the, you know, the, you need clients coming through the door. Um, you need a reputation to draw people in. And then you need to charge them money. So one thing I, uh, that I didn't like, and why I went into legal aid defense, where the government pays and you, and you get on with the work, yeah. um, is I didn't like charging clients saying, look, Write me a check for two thousand pounds, and I'll see you tomorrow with with the partner. Or you know, um, very it's it's, uh, it, it's I, I just don't like the cost side of law. It's all about it's actually all about costs. Law. It's all about using costs as leverage or as certainly um, in litigation can be like that. So that that's a big difference. So you've got to get the clients in, and you've got to charge the money, and you've got to hit billable hours each year. Obviously, here in-house, and I'd recommend something like 25% or 30% 30, 30 or so of people now working as solicitors in this country and England and Wales are in-house now. It's, it's become much more popular um, in recent years. So it's a great, it's a great career. Um, you've got your one client, but the client is constantly changing and developing and innovating. Um, so it's, it's not, not at all boring and staid. And, um, and you, you can do get to know the client very well, all its appetite for risk, who the personalities are, um, and very nice to be able to work uh, constantly um, in, a, in a sort of groove where you, where you know many of the issues and you can try and give the best advice to the, to the one client, really. Yeah. Does that answer? Well, there's that some of the differences between yeah. the, two, the two, types of, uh, two types of law. No, it does. I think a lot of the, what we tell our students is that they do, you know, more private companies rather than in-house. Um, and definitely it's great to hear about this more personal connection that you have rather than transactional um, sort of meeting relationship you have. But yeah, thank you. Shank, over to you. Yeah, so as a 
STEM specialist university following on that theme. So my question to you is with rising costs and the fact that there's less of a workforce in-house, how does the FT alleviate the pressure of embracing digital transformation? And how would you decide if a particular technology cuts in to your profit margin, say? Yeah, uh, that's good. Very good. Very good question. I mean, I, um, wh wherever you work, your experience will be dictated to an extent by how successful that, that employer is, if it's doing well, making profit and so on. I mean, the FT is 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 doing well and is uh, quite well resourced you know so certainly the the new digital and visual journalism team is is growing and is doing exciting very exciting work so I don't think it's a case of um, having to struggle with um, uh, less resources in in house um, I'm fortunate uh, I really just focus on the on the sort of theories of law and and ethics uh, don't get very involved in the commercial decisions so um, uh, you know the editorial management team will make decisions on uh, what's um, cost effective We're, we are we are trialing one sort of recent issue we're trialing one new product in the newsroom to, to access a new database of information which potentially could cost tens of thousands of pounds and you know I've been involved in trying to set up a team of journalists to trial that and see how it works for them over a couple of months um, and ultimately I may be involved in helping decide whether it's cost effective and worthwhile paying paying for that but um, uh, yeah as I say other, other, other people tend to make the, the, the cost decisions fortunately and I, and I have the luxury of just getting on with thinking about the, um, the lawfulness of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were also actually very curious in as a media lawyer, how would the defamation of AI affect your role as at, at the FT? Defamation of people through an AI publication. Yes. Yeah. For example, through deep faking. Or... Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, I was sort of uh, touching on this a bit earlier um, in that the, the law tries to apply its old traditional rules, um, you know, so if you in the old days, you put a notice on the pin, a notice on a notice board with a drawing pin. The question would be, well, who who wrote it and who pinned it up? You know, who's the author and who's the publisher and who then saw it? And then, so with AI publication, um, you know, the, the, if there's if someone's being defamed through the imagery, um, the question will be for the courts, who who gave the instructions to the AI, um, and then who disseminated it and who distributed it knowingly or Perhaps someone dis distributed it innocently without knowing what it was. So those traditional issues of, of defamation law would apply. Um, and I, I think the, the problem these days is that it's very difficult to know who authored it and who uh, where it originated, especially with the disinformation campaigns with state actors and so on. So I don't know if that answers your question. Thank you so much, ladies. And of course, thank you so much, Angel, for sharing all your insights, expertise, and also your career path that was so interesting. And I really hope you enjoyed this. I definitely did. So, uh, guys, as usual, check the um, show notes for today because we are going to put the, all the stories I said. Check uh, all the other episodes and keep reading the FT. Thank you. 
This has been the Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor, and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Thank you.